Our topic today for our first week is Egypt and also ancient Near East. So sometimes in our sessions, we're going to be doing two geographical regions or two art movements um, just for the sake of getting through our material. I'm really hoping not to rush you all. I think that it's important to cover as much as possible so that you can get the most out of this survey course, but I don't want to overload you either. Keep in mind for your papers and for your bigger assignments in this class, what I want to see from you is things that you're genuinely interested in. So the great thing about the survey course is that if you're not super interested in Egypt or ancient Near East, maybe you'll really be drawn to early North African or um, Baroque art or, you know, whatever it might be throughout the semester. You're going to be seeing a lot of different themes and a lot of different art movements um, from the ancient world to very contemporary. So, so bear with me. But one thing that is consistent each week we have sort of general, but specific depending on what week we're doing. So our aims for our class are general. We always want to, especially when we're in the ancient world, we want to position histories in time and space. We want to know where do we sit on this timeline from now till, or from the ancient world till now. Um, and so we'll go over that in just a second. And then geographically, maybe these names in ancient history, for example, Mesopotamia, there's, there's nowhere in the contemporary world that is Mesopotamia, but topologically speaking, that land still exists and it goes by a different name, Iraq. So we'll go over that as well. Um, and then we want to next connect the images and objects that we're looking at with their political, social, and cultural context. Now, it's not always going to have political, social, and cultural context for each week necessarily, but we do want to look out for that. We're going to train ourselves to do formal analysis, but we're also going to look deeper at the political uh, movements or events that happen, the social changes, and of course the cultural importance of the objects we're looking at. So it can be more than just an image, and it can also have the historical background um, that makes that image more meaningful. And also understanding the historical importance for ourselves, for our own experiences out in the world, that's really not only going to help you remember what you're learning more, but it's going to give you a more meaningful experience throughout this course if you can somehow attach these histories to either your own interests, how can these things appear in your everyday life, maybe they already do and you haven't realized it yet, um, maybe it's bringing up certain memories that you've had as a child or something like, I mean, who knows? That's up to you. But we are going to experiment with our reading responses to one another and our discussion groups that we have 
um, on Blackboard Collaborate, hopefully, if it ends up working for us. And getting into that contemporary connection with the historical past. So looking at the timeline here, and you'll see on the website that I've got images. I have a gallery of images right below the podcast link. So you can look at that and follow along, uh, or you could take notes and um, follow along later. Whatever ends up working for you, it might take a few tries to, to find uh, the most efficient and enjoyable way for you to learn. Uh, we can also talk about that one-on-one -on -one if you have any questions. But let's look at this timeline. It's, we've, we're looking at ancient Egyptian period and the ancient Near Eastern kingdoms in terms of, a time, in terms of time, right? Um, and interestingly, within the ancient world, we're seeing a lot of time become calibrated and actually instantiated into a formal timeline. So like, for example, the 30-day calendar, uh, the Egyptians were part of the, they initiated um, time being thought of in that way. And so we'll discuss ancient Sumeria, for example, and we'll look at the first development of writing. And that emerged over a thousand years before ancient Egypt, so even older than ancient Egypt. And that was in existence for a total of 2,500 years. Then Egypt rose to power in 3100, and that was a major kingdom for almost 3,000 years. And then simultaneously, um, we have the 2,000 year about uh, Assyrian Empire. But what does BCE mean? Maybe some of you already know, right? Or maybe You've seen it, but you're not, you're not totally sure what it stands for. Well, it's just before Common Era. And what's Common Era? Well, if we were going to be really, I guess, accurate with our dates, when we write our dates at the top of the page or type our um, date under our name, we would write 2020 CE, 2020 Common Era. So that gives you maybe some context of... BCE, and then you can see even at the end of this timeline, we have zero CE, zero common era. So right after that begins common era. And we don't necessarily enter the modern world immediately. We'll get to that later after the medieval period, but um, which we're doing a little bit of Gothic architecture, and that's unfortunately all we had time for with medieval, but then we get into the modern era. So it's really... Um, the ancient world is is not even close to where we end up towards the end of the semester. But what about now moving on to this map we have? What about where we sit geographically in in position and in context to the ancient world that we're talking about today? Well, some of the earliest um, complex urban centers that can be found in Mesopotamia lie between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So maybe you've heard of these. And actually, Mesopotamia means uh, between two rivers in ancient Greek. And the history of Mesopotamia is linked to this greater region. 
it's comprised of the modern nations that we know of Egypt, Iran, Syria, Jordan, um, Israel, Lebanon, and the, all the Gulf states and Turkey as well. And I suppose also Kurdistan. But we often refer to this region, this whole geographical region as the Near or Middle East, right? That's what you see on the news. That's what you read in newspapers or talking about it with friends and family. Um, maybe unless you have some specific tie to a country there. And so you're, therefore you are trained to be more specific and therefore accurate. But really, it's, it's called the Middle East. And I kind of want us to ask ourselves, well, why is it called the Near East? Like, what near to what, right? Well, it is the proximity of these countries to the West. It's near the West, to Europe, that led this area to be termed the Near East. And so when we're thinking about challenging the Euro-American canon, we want to think about these sort of assumed positions in even in just terminology and maybe I'm being too nitpicky but I think that it really says a lot about how things become a part of the canon and for our context here the Near East becomes a part of our canon in art history and in the institution because of the West's interest in the biblical holy land that the ancient Near Eastern materials, such as the Bible, would have been regarded as part of the Western canon um, in history and the history of art. One of the ways to understand the artistic importance of the region of Mesopotamia is by looking at its geography. Mesopotamia is a region of a wide variety of geographical um, regions. So it's got deserts, it has mountain ranges, but it's also very lush. And it has the rivers that I mentioned, Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and irrigation systems were able to exist during, um, I'm sorry, using the water from, from the rivers. And this is also an example of some of the work that allowed for the early and formed the early urban centers in those regions. What they were missing though, or what they lacked, was stone. So what does this mean? Well, it requires them, since they need this to build, they had to participate in trade. So since it's also lacking uh, metals and timber, they <clears throat> really needed to build in order to create a larger civilization and expand because um, they were able to do that and also didn't want to uh, resettle somewhere else because of all the other resources that they have, like these lush areas, mountain ranges, and also the deserts are handy as well. But so what, what they did was they just established this long distance trade of their agricultural products from their own luscious regions and in turn received 
materials uh, like stone and um, later precious materials like um, metals and, and even wood. And so over time, their agriculture becomes more advanced and farmers are able to perform other jobs as well. So not only are they um, taking care of the land and cultivating the land, but people are also becoming craftsmen. So we've got stonemasons now um, and tradesmen, of course, but also tons of other roles, like everything you can kind of think of in terms of uh, um, using one's craft in the ancient world. So weavers, uh, fishermen, um, metal workers, pottery makers. Uh, there was even brew, uh, beer brew brewers, which we'll look at when we look at the cuneiform tablet. But so the large-scale irrigation systems that they had and labor required for extensive farming, farming was managed by a centralized authority. And the early development of this authority, sort of like a government um, over large numbers of people in the urban center, is what distinguishes Mesopotamia and gives it this position in history of in the history of uh, civilizations. And that's why. It's really known now as the cradle of civilization for the first time, thanks to ample food and strong administrative class, they're able to develop a very high level of craft specialization and artistic production. On that note, though, it's also uh, not, you know, I would be remiss to say, and we would all be remiss to not also know that slavery was justified because the gods wanted the kings to lay claim over people, inferior people. And so really the people that were enslaved built these temples that we'll look at um, and the urban areas as well. So just keep this in mind as we move along. The earliest form of writing was created by the Sumerians and it's called cuneiform. And you're looking here at a early writing tablet. If you're following along with the images, writing is the recording of spoken language. The earliest writing we know of dates back to around 3000 BCE. So it was most likely invented by the Sumerians and in Mesopotamia, living in major cities with centralized economies. And this is now what we know as Southern Iraq. And the earliest tablets with written inscriptions, like this one, represent the work of administrators or people that ran the city and the temple institutions, which we'll look at next. And the temple officials needed to keep records of the trade, and so things like the grain from their region, but also um, what's entering or leaving their stores and farms, such as sheep and cattle, they had plenty of livestock, and it became impossible to rely on memory. And it was also a way 
for people to understand how to create things or um, so one of the tablets that I show here is how to make beer and so therefore say someone wasn't around to teach someone directly uh, or that person passed on or something and we needed to know being in pretending we're in Sumeria we needed to know how to make beer or cook something else um, so this was a way to have instructions in order to do that. And because this would be not only impossible to remember, but impossible to pass on if the living person isn't there. So this alternative method was required, and that's what was the impetus for creating the early writing tablets. And the very earliest texts were pictures, pictures of the items that the scribes needed to record known as pictographs. So take a look at this image, or the a few of them, and also take a look at the tools that were used. So cuneiform signs were pressed into tablets made of clay using a wedge-shaped tool. And you can see that it would harden afterward, but would start out soft like clay often does and then hardens over time. And the symbol for beer, so just going with our example, is the upright jar with a pointed base. So you might be able to find it in the image. It appears three times on the tablet. And beer was the most popular drink in Mesopotamia, and it was issued as rations to workers. Alongside the pictographs of these tablets, are five different shaped impressions representing numerical symbols. Over time, these signs became more abstract and wedge-like, known as cuneiform. The signs are grouped into boxes, as you can see here, and they're usually read from top to bottom and right to left. Um, so slightly different than how we read today. One sign in the bottom row on the left shows a bowl tipped towards a schematic human head. And that's actually the sign for uh, eating. And another thing to note is that just, just as they had the early form of writing, they would also then have early forms of teaching. So not only were people learning new types of trade and skills, but they were also learning how to write in cuneiform. And it took a hang of it, I think, to get the handwriting a little more precise, but you can look at student copy and uh, teacher copy and see the differences. <clears throat> the ziggurat is the most distinctive architectural invention of the ancient Near East. And this is the ziggurat of Ur, which is one of the best preserved ziggurats. And like an Egyptian pyramid, which we'll look at um, and compare later, an ancient Near Eastern ziggurat has four sides and rises up to the realm of the gods. However, unlike Egyptian pyramids, the exterior of ziggurats were not smooth and they were tiered. This was to accommodate the work which took place as the structure as well as the administrative oversight of these structures that we mentioned earlier with this new administrative class. 
And there were also, of course, religious rituals that took place. Um, and many funerary events took place here as well. And in addition to other religious rituals, though, so it's a um, multifunctional in that way. And they were scattered around what is today Iraq and Iran. But testament to the power of this empire and skill to the individuals that produce them. Um, of course, some of these individuals were enslaved, uh, and this was part of the hierarchy of Mesopotamia, which is often left out of history. But the amount of skill that went into these, this was not unskilled labor. This is, these are monumental sculptures that requires imaginably a lot of sweat, probably some blood, uh, very likely some tears. And the fact that they're still um, standing, or at least the structures, and then they've been renovated in the modern world, but to have them even the, the foundation still intact goes to show how well they were built originally. And we can also take note of these structures being a representation and also a functional part of a city-state, which was another one of the great Sumerian inventions. And so activities that had once been individually initiated were then institutionalized and the state took responsibility for things like the safety and welfare of its inhabitants. So this might not sound very groundbreaking, but when you have the first civilization in human history that we know of, that is a huge accomplishment. And it's, it's almost repetitive now but this is happening for the first time. Um, so he, so they're made out of mud brick, as, as I have in the caption, and baked brick. So that's hardened brick. Um, we also have the Nana ziggurat. Um, and as I mentioned, one of the largest and best pre preserved ziggurats, though, is the ziggurat at Ur. And in the 1920s, an archaeologist named Sir Leonard Woolley, he was on a joint project with the University of Pennsylvania Museum in Philadelphia and also the British Museum in London. And this is the sort of rediscovery, the early 20th century rediscovery of the monument in its entirety, but it was of course not in perfect condition and the he, he he just came about this massive pyramidal structure i mean he was he was intentionally looking for it but he found it and it measured uh 210 by 150 feet and it was constructed with three levels of terraces um standing so the terraces themselves stand between 70 and 100 feet high. And again, this is modern day Iraq. 
And so thinking about the monumental staircases that you walk up and they lead up to the first terrace level. And then you would get to a single staircase that rose to a second terrace, which supported a platform on which a temple stood. So you're walking all the way up to this temple. And that's and the aim of that is so that you are closer to God and the divine power because you are moving upward. And upward is seen as this verticality up to the heavens. So thinking about what it's made out of, let's remember that the resources for building had to be traded and were often put together by enslaved people. So the core is made of mud brick, and this is covered with baked bricks laid with bitumen, which is a chemical. Um, it's a naturally occurring tar, so this keeps it tacky and, and, and stuck together. And each of the baked bricks were about um, 12 by 12, maybe 11 by 11 inches, and weighed as much as 33 pounds. So they're, they're big. They're big. They're actually, that's actually larger than what I, at least, um, and what we probably think of, you know, when you think of like fireside the, the, in your fireplace or maybe you have a brick wall in your building or you live in a brick building. Um, those are probably closer to nine feet. Um, so these are a bit larger and heavy, very heavy. And the lower portion of the ziggurat, which supported that first terrace, would have used, just to give you an idea, about 700,000 bricks, probably more. So really the resources required are immense and pretty staggering when you think of the lack of industry and lack of technology that the ancient world had. This is all done by hand, man-made labor, man, man labor. So this I got is, and as all ziggurats are, but ziggurat god Nana, and the moon god Nana is the divine patron of the city-state. And this is what made the ziggurat symbolic and a focal point of the city because their size and height, but also what they represented. Remember, it's really this vertical um, rising up to the gods and being more in touch with the divine, which is actually a common theme in architecture when we talk about Gothic cathedrals. And so as the ziggurat supported the temple of the patron god, so whether it's the moon god Nana for the Nana ziggurat, or the patron god of Ur, and is also where the citizens of Ur, or wherever the ziggurat is, and they would bring architectural surplus where they would go to receive their regular food allotments. Um, so there's this economic interest in having uh, not an abundance of food, but the right kind, the right amount of food, just, the, just what people need, and then any surplus would go um, to be used in religious ritual and oriented around the gods. But it was also a place that people could go to get religious nourishment and then having extra food, they could also 
receive physical nourishment as well. Next, I have these images of military. Uh, they're wearing their Desert Storm uniforms. They are in the US Army. And there's a, I've provided two, two or three images of them walking on the, it's actually the ziggurat of Ur. And this is in modern day Iraq. And I, as I pointed out, our aims in all of our classes are to connect how images can be used politically, economically, and socially in the context of the time that they existed. So in this case, ancient Mesopotamia. And also understanding how the religious significance, the political and social significance of building this administrative body, um, a place to be nourished, to be hired, to hire up physically, literally, um, to God. And also thinking, okay, in our contemporary context, so this is during the Iraq war, what do, what does it mean when our, when looking at these images, just a really basic starting point, what does it mean to look at this image? Like how is this image even something that we can look at, looking at um, members of the US Army walking on the ziggurat. In the following photo, I've got a photo, an image of a souvenir shop at the ziggurat are, and I imagine that's kind of something that you can do in addition to walking on the ziggurat. I actually haven't been here myself. Um, and so thinking about the idea of tourism and how that changes the meaning of these ancient structures. Um, so just, but start from a basic uh, starting point, which is what do you see? And normally if we were doing a class in person, we would go through that formal analysis together. So we will do this in class um, together because you'll have come in our class discussion because you'll have come prepared after um, listening to this lecture and, and posting your response. And we'll go through a bit of formal analysis so we can practice it together. After all, this is the first class, but it really is a basic way of understanding what you're seeing. And that is a, is a place that anyone can channel, whether you're at a museum, whether you're reading the news and you come across an image whether you see something on Instagram maybe and you wanna unpack it, it's interesting to you. So I'm challenging us to now knowing some of the history to also think about that in the contemporary context of this image with this ancient structure, which of course has been repaired over time. Um, so an interesting so you can pause and look at it, but I'll share an interesting note about this image and the context of which it was taken and how it came to be. Of course, 
the Iraq war being one of them. But during the recent war that was led by the United States and, co and other coalition forces, Saddam Hussein actually parked his fighter jets next to the ziggurat of Ur, believing that the bombers would spare them for fear of destroying the ancient site. Now, Hussein's assumptions proved only partially true. The ziggurat sustained some, some damage from uh, American and, and their coalition's uh, bombardment into the structure. So what we're looking at was Saddam Hussein's gesture to protect his land, so to speak, and it failed in term, in the context of a war. So there's no hesitation to bombard, to carry on the duties of war in order to preserve these ancient sites. And yet we also have an image of U.S. military and maybe some coalition on the sites stopping at the souvenir shop. And it is actually, I got these images from a blog post from an, a, a man who was in the army. Um, I'm not sure if he still is. And he was fascinated by these ancient structures. I don't think he expected being deported that he would also have this tourist experience um, and of such a an ancient structure and something that brings up themes of architecture and art and uh, being in awe of its monumentality. So it's, I mean, we can also talk about the religious implications of what it means to think about U.S. imperialism and religion in the Middle East. And yet, you know, here we are in awe of the structure itself, but do does the imperialist perspective understand all of the history and meaning behind it? Um, does it even matter necessarily? So I try, I, I pose this as an interesting exercise for you, but it's much, uh, it becomes richer in discussion. So hopefully we can get to um, get our wheels turning and um, have a bit more of a critical discussion about that. But yeah, so the ziggurat was damaged and by a small arms fire. And it was also shaken by, certain, uh, I think it was four different explosions. And the walls of the ziggurat are marred over by 400 So I want to just be a bit repetitive here and recap what we've gone through so far with the ziggurats. So the ziggurat is a built raised platform with the four sloping sides, like a chopped off pyramid. And they're made of mud bricks. The building material of choice in the Near East as stone is rare. So we'll remember it's a very lush, uh, rich in agriculture, area, but there's this problem of a lack in materials 
to build things like stones and heavier materials. So there is trade that comes as a result of this needing to have material to build with. Also, going back to who built this, well, um, enslaved peoples built these structures by hand. And ziggurats were not only a visual focal point of the city, but they were also symbolic. They were the heart of the theocratic political system. So the theocracy being a type of government where a god is recognized as the ruler and the state officials operate on behalf of, of God. So seeing the ziggurat towering above the city, one made can make this visual connection to the god or goddess honored there and also recognize, okay, um, that God also has this political authority over this new administrative wing in their um, urban city-states, of course, ancient. And we'll also take a look at the temple that sits on top. So a ziggurat is the foundation, the base for the temple, right? That leads us or leads one closer to God. And this white temple that we know, um, that we know of, but is no longer in existence, but we have a um, digitized image of it. And it was, we know that it was rectangular and it was about 17.5 by 22 meters. And it's a typical, or it was a typical high temple, meaning that there's this tripartite plan where there's a long rectangular central hall with rooms on either side. And there's three different entrances. The White Temple at least had three. Not all of them did, but typically you'll have more than one. And none of which face the ziggurat ramp directly, which is important because remember, recall how, how steep the ziggurat is and that it, you're walking up these stairs, kind of going through this journey in order to get to the temple. And then once you're at the top, kind of pause, okay, we're here, we made it, or I made it. And then you know, take a moment of pause, recognize where you are, and then you'll walk around the temple and come to one of the entrances where you're invited in through the architecture, but not immediately, right? It requires you to walk around it. It's not an immediate entrance point once you make it to the top of the ziggurat. So I hope that's clear that the ziggurat is the base that's holding the temple on top. And so yes, the visitors would have needed to walk around the temple. We can imagine what that would be like, appreciating its bright facade. It's, it's got this amazing view because it's so high up. You know, you wouldn't, ha wouldn't have these kind of views in the ancient world. It's very monumental, very awe-inspiring. And this is the typical arrangement for ancient Near Eastern temples, um, the ones that, that come after as well. 
And I've given you an image of the interior of the temple, and I hope you can make out which one that is. As I've provided a caption, interior of the White Temple. And you'll see the light shining through the doors, but it's, it's subtle. It's not coming through the ceiling or coming through um, what we might imagine cathedral doors are really large. These are fairly modest, modestly sized, and but they have this patterned um, lace design that allows the light to gently come through. And the chambers in the middle that you can see on the right side appear to be equipped with wooden shelves that would have displayed cavities or pivot stones. Um, it might imply a solid door that was fitted in the space to, to build it, to flush, to keep it flush to the rest of the structure. And the north end of the central hall had a podium that was accessible by a small staircase that had the altar with a fire-stained surface. And we have a very um, small image of that in the front by the doors. But very few objects were found inside the temple um, since then, but they ha archaeologists have, have found tablets um, on the floor of the temple and these tablets have these seal imp impressions that um, show that some kind of accounting was being tracked. So, um, you know, some kind of ancient accounting, whether that's like we were mentioning before with the trade and keeping track of, of trade and what's coming in and what's coming out, um, all of that would have been discovered. What do you associate with the art of ancient Egypt? Egypt's impact on culture was immense. Egypt provided the building blocks for Greek and Roman culture. It influenced Western traditions. And also Egyptian imagery today um, is found everywhere. You'll maybe recall movies you've seen, uh, music videos, um, I'll show you a few images and videos that are contemporary uh, examples of this. And partly because ancient Egyptian civilization was very smart, precise, and also had very simple imagery that was uh, more or less easy to replicate, but it also lasted more than 3,000 years. And a vast amount of Egyptian imagery, especially royal imagery that was governed by a sense of what was appropriate, was very consistent throughout this 3,000 year history. So you can um, kind of imagine what sort of permanence that would set. And especially to the untrained eye, their art appears a bit maybe static or even dull in terms of its symbols, 
the way the body is rendered, which we'll talk about. But this was all intentional from the Egyptians. They were aware of their consistency. They were aware of the aims of being consistent, which was to have stability, um, continuity, divine balance, and a clear sense of what was appropriate, what was correct in the Egyptian culture. They wanted that to be instantiated throughout history, and they succeeded at that, the Egyptians. And this consistency is related to a fundamental belief that depictions had an impact beyond the image itself. So think of tomb scenes of the deceased receiving food, or temple scenes of the king performing rituals for the gods. These function as events and moments that occur in the divine realm. So beyond the impact of the image itself and something that takes place in the divine realm. It's almost like the act of divinity, of respect, of the Egyptian culture was more important than the aesthetic, the visual, the formalism of the objects and images that come from Egyptian culture. And that is something that is much harder to replicate. And thinking about going to a museum and seeing a relic from a pyramid or looking at a stone statue of a pharaoh and his wife. We can do a formal analysis, we can do a historical analysis, but the objects themselves have in them these memories that are not necessarily our own. And that's really what's interesting about Egypt, but also the objects that are, are artifacts, really, of a time when the ancient world and ancient Egyptian civilization thrived. And um, of course, that is not to negate modern day Egypt at all. It's only to understand the distinction between the two. So yeah, so these images and these objects are functions of things that occur in the divine realm. Thinking of one small example, if the image of a bread loaf maybe was omitted from the deceased table and say that the, because food was brought to the deceased in the tomb, then it was believed they may not have bread in the afterlife. And so often um, kings and significant figures were treated as though their spirits were still living, but their bodies maybe were gone or were had left this world, but they existed in the divine realm and were, so to speak, living in the afterlife. So it was really important to give them all of the things that they would need in the afterlife. 
And if the king was depicted with a, a, an incorrect ritual implement, then the whole ritual was thrown off and uh, there would be very dire consequences in the afterlife. And so this is what really motivated and instantiated and made permanent these codified depictions. Um, and so let's move on to what some of these symbols are with our contemporary examples. So I'll give you a moment to look at some of the links that I've provided. I have Katy Perry's Dark Horse music video. Now I'm not the biggest fan of Katy Perry, but it's a great, uh, maybe you are, maybe you're not. The song isn't bad, but it's just to sort of jog our memories into saying, oh yeah, there is, there is a lot of Egyptian imagery in the contemporary world, isn't there? So think about hieroglyphs, the Sphinx, think about thrones, mummies, um, jewelry, palaces, and um, in this case of Katy Perry, the image of a pharaoh as a woman. And then also, um, if I can find them, I haven't actually grabbed them yet because I think it's on Netflix or something. Beyonce has a Coachella performance. She has a few different moments where she is performing her own version of Nefertiti, the queen of Egypt. So go ahead and check those out. Um, pause this and, and then come back. And once you're back, we'll talk a bit about the geography. So ancient Egypt, which borders, um, or whose borders in modern Egypt, are built along this very fertile plain of the Nile River, which I'm sure you have heard of, of the northeastern tip of Africa. And the geography is a barren desert, um, but there is an explosion of grain on either side of the Nile. And the river emerges from uh, far to the south, pretty deep into Africa's continent, and empties into the Mediterranean Sea in the north after it spreads from a single channel into this fan-shaped system, which is called the Delta. But the influence of the Nile on Egyptian culture is something that cannot be emphasized enough. Without its presence, the civilization would have been entirely different and actually entirely elsewhere in terms of topologically speaking. And the Nile provided not only a constant source of water, which is very life-giving, but it also created fertile land so that there could be a lot of growth um, in terms of agriculture and the, cult, the Egyptian culture itself. But the art, so kind of jumping back to the art, the art is very static. It's very kind of simple, a little abstract. 
some sometimes blocky. And this is then is compared to Greek and Renaissance art, which aims to be more naturalistic, meaning, so if you see a, a face of a human, maybe in the Renaissance and compare that with Egyptian imagery, you're going to see a lot more detail in a Renaissance um, painting than a statue of an Egyptian pharaoh. But we need to remember that these works were never intended to be looked at. It wasn't their purpose. And they were designed to benefit a divine or deceased pharaoh or some other recipient. And they also have a strict frontality to them, which is also a signifier. So what do I mean by that? Well, thinking Think about a sculpture that you see. Maybe have one near your house. Maybe you saw them on your commute to work. Maybe you remember seeing them at a museum one time. And ask yourself, did I or do I or could I walk all the way around that statue and see detail that the artist or the artisan has depicted on the object itself? So that is kind of a sign if you don't see, so say the back of the sculpture is really plain and actually maybe even still rough, uh, still rough in terms of the material that it's made out of. So if it's a stone, maybe it's not even paved smooth. Well, we're not in, maybe contemporary sculpture gets a little more um, nuanced, but in terms of our Egyptian sculptures, and really anything predating, uh, you know, early 20th century, I'd say. We are thinking of how is this going to be viewed? How is it going to be placed? Well, for the Egyptians, like I said, it was not intended to be seen. It had uh, a purpose in the divine realm. It wasn't a work of art, per se, for spectators to gaze at. So when I say frontality, I mean, you look at it straight on. It's showing you body, front of the body. Um, if something about it is very stiff and almost incomplete, and that's precisely because of this um, arrangement of them being in a ritual or um, almost a backdrop actually to what whatever ritual was being performed in front of them and whatever was being placed in front of them like food and furniture and uh, things that they would quote-unquote need in the afterlife. And so moving to an actual sculpture of King Menkara and Queen, we can do a visual analysis of just basics. What are we seeing? What do we see? And then adding a bit more. So what, what are we looking at in terms of the context and the history of the piece? And this particular statue is found in the 
smallest pyramids at Giza, which we will get to, promise. And it's life-size, and it shows the pharaoh with his queen. She's unidentified, but she is his queen. Um, you know, it could also potentially be a, a goddess or actually even his mother. Um, doesn't mean he's married to his mother, but the queen could also be the mother, depending on the lineage. And the depiction of Menkara is representative of kingship and the ideal human male form of the time. And the woman is the ideal female. And you'll notice that his hands are very stiff. Um, and his form is fairly slender, slightly muscular. And his face is actually a bit, it is, it does have some naturalism in it. I mean, we can make out eyes and mouth and nose. Um, and in his hand, he clasps, it's always, uh, uh, students are always curious, what is he holding? And it might be symbols of his office or his place in, uh, as Pharaoh. So some object that's representative or symbolic of that. But he has these high cheekbones, this bulbous nose, slight furrows running diagonally from his nose to the corner of his mouth. And his lower lip is slightly pouted even. So these are some visual formal analysis characteristics that we can make out. And the rigid posture of the figures and distinctly shrink body shows the continued Egyptian depiction of human bodies as the standardized, idealized forms. So this becomes thinking in terms of Egyptian, where it's passed down, it's continuous, it's repetitive on purpose, so that these ideal forms are known not just once, but continuous, consistent, and learned and representative of Egyptian culture so that that can have longevity um, in history, in the afterlife. That was so, so important to them. There's this, this term that if I, I'm not doing quizzes, uh, this doesn't really make sense to me in a virtual class, but I would ask you to learn of an important vocabulary word called ka, K-A, that's, that's it. And that's the idea of a spirit that's housed in the statue itself. And that is what lives on. So even if the body is deceased, the, the ka, spirit, lives on in the afterlife. And so it needs to be taken care of. It needs to be uh, very precise. Rituals need to be performed um, because of the importance of the ka. And I've also provided a, an image of a man in a museum pointing at the statues, just so you can get an idea of what I mean. These aren't meant to be in museums. The Egyptians didn't make them to be in museums. It wasn't there, they didn't really, um, it just wasn't the purpose behind them. And so it's interesting to see it in the museum and how they've, set it up here. It also gives you an idea a bit of the scale. And the Egyptian art is, is idealized, as I said. 
um, but also sometimes abstracted from the actual pharaoh in order to fit the certain canon of proportions. So while we can say, okay, maybe the pharaoh actually looked like that, maybe the queen actually looked like that, or its, it's um, semblance is pretty close, likeness is pretty close, but ultimately we can, we can presume that it's not entirely accurate because of this importance of the canon of proportions. So it needed to be idealized, youthful, this athletic uh, figure, and um, the importance of appearing more divine than human is, is why that is. And also the seated figure is interesting because it's it's has similar characteristics in terms of the standardized form. Um, and the context and identity of the statue is a bit different. It's a different king. Um, there's a change in the facial features, right? It's slightly different though. This one has some damage to the nose, um, but there's also something on the, I, I, I don't know if it's proper to say throne, um, but throne closer than chair. There are little designs on there and you can kind of guess what those are based on those key sort of Egyptian um symbols and words that we know, they're hieroglyphs. And those are also now becoming a part of the statue. Um, and so thinking about the facial features that are altered here are modifications that are meant to produce an image that would be recognizable as one of the kings. So they slightly are modified, but still fairly standardized. I mean, thinking about the headdress he's wearing, the um, body is still very athletic, um, but the features are slightly changed. And then it becomes more significant that the features are made identifiable and not just idealized. Looking at her features, Nefertiti's features, a significant part of her face are her eyes. And her eyes have this almond-shaped presence and a thick eyeliner that frame them and make them really pop on her face. When we're thinking about Egyptian representations in contemporary culture, or contemporary representations of Egyptian culture, when thinking about hieroglyphs, one of the symbols that, if you watched the Katy Perry video or thought back to any of the mummy movies maybe you've seen in your childhood, the Eye of Horus is a hieroglyph. It's also known as Wajet. Um, but it's an Egyptian, ancient Egyptian symbol of protection, royal power, so some sort of connection to royal power in the court, and good health. And these are all things that would have been 
important to paint on a funerary piece or something that was buried with the dead because it protects them in the afterlife. So remember, this is so, so important for Egyptians. And you could also observe her elongated neck, very high cheekbones that in this, this photo in particular that I've shared with you with the black background, it's really accentuated with the light hitting these parts of her face. Um, and of course the color of the paint, her very decorative collar or necklace, most likely jewelry that was added on and her, the shape and the attention that was put on her headdress as well. It's this very iconic, um, now very iconic representation of Egyptian queens. Um, Beyonce has reappropriated this in her own music videos to self-fashion herself as a kind of Egyptian queen, um, maybe Nefertiti specifically. So how do we have this? What's the history behind our modern discovery of this ancient object? So I'll give you a little bit of background. In December of 1913, there's an archaeologist named um, Ludwig Borchart, and he goes with his team. They discover a sculpture buried upside down, as archaeologists do, in a sandy rubble on the floor. Um, and... It happened to be a royal sculptor's workshop. Um, and so they found it in an ancient royal workshop. And the painted figure featured a slender neck, gracefully proportioned face, and these magnificent eyes and headpiece of a style that the style was really only seen in images of Nefertiti. So they thought, wow, we're really onto something. So his team had an agreement to split its artifacts with the Egyptian government, and the bust was shipped as part of Germany's portion of what all the objects that they found, which is not uncommon. Um, this is how we get into interesting conversations about how to decolonize museums and return artifacts to their origins. Um, but we can get to that later in the semester or in our class discussion. We'll see what you guys are interested in. So what comes out of it? That we have this single photograph that was published in an archeological journal in early 20th century, and the bust was given to the expedition's funder, who is a different, not the archeologist, but a man named Jacques Simon, and he displayed it for the next years in his private residence. Later on, 1922, an Egyptologist discovers King Tut's tomb, another big discovery. And a year later, this tomb with objects found from the tomb is displayed in Berlin with Nefertiti's bust. So the private collector hands it over, some kind of agreement was in place, some sort of commission trade. And now, we can still see, I believe it's still in the Berlin Neues Museum, um, 
and also another kind of side note, but it, the bust, Nefertiti's bust was revered by Hitler. He has quoted as saying, I will never relinquish the head of the queen. Um, so this is really common in Western Europe to, with France, it's really the Romans. Um, in other places, it's the Greeks. In Germany, uh, there was definitely some appropriation of ancient Rome and the architecture and in the way that they uh, were, they were, you know, Hitler himself was very inspired by the empire of Rome, domination. So Egypt was also this symbol um, and this German appropriation of ancient glamour from the so-called East. So um, that's just an interesting side note there. And so, yes, yeah, so going back to the Eye of Horus, though, because really I can't teach you the hieroglyphic alphabet. I mean, I could, but I'd have to learn it myself. Um, but if you're interested in that, there's a lot of resources. Um, Khan Academy would have some. I'll post them on our website. But the Eye of Horus is a, if you take away one thing, because this is something that will come up in other art movements and other not even art movements, it's, it's incorporated in design. Um, and it could come up again in the semester. So we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that. But eyes in general have this interesting lineage in art history as well. So um, perhaps we can make that a common thread for us to keep our eyes out for. No pun intended. Moving on to the Great Pyramids at Giza. One of the um, like little pet peeves that I have is a lot of times people will say the Giza Pyramids or the Great Pyramids of Giza. It's important to say the Great Pyramids at Giza because this is how they would have been known in the ancient world and also it's the, the pyramids themselves aren't named Giza, it's, it's the city of Giza. So maybe some of you already knew that, but I just thought I'd point that out so we can all be on the same page. And each of these pyramids has a funerary temple next to it with a causeway leading to the Nile. And when, say, a pharaoh died, his body would be ferried across the river. Imagine the beautiful ritual that that would have been. And the pyramids themselves have elaborate internal plans with passageways and corridors um, some of them are even just set up. They're not even real passageways that go anywhere in particular, just to thwart off potential grave robbers. So they're preparing that, um, okay, we need to not only protect these mummified bodies, but in the afterlife, but also um, we need to protect their bodies physically as well from people that might be stealing them. Those are worth something. And while many questions still remain regarding how the pyramids were built exactly, they are clearly monumental evidence of this advanced engineering that the Egyptians had in the ancient world and, of course, their ability to mobilize a massive labor force. And again, the overwhelming importance of the afterlife was a big impetus for creating the pyramids at all. But they do have a unique shape. And a ziggurat is kind of like an inverted pyramid. So a pyramid is like an inverted 
ziggurat. You remember how the ziggurats move upward um, to, and they have this big, big base foundation. And a pyramid is, its entire structure is leading upward, like a uh, tri triangle. And so the architectures have similarities. Um, I also think it's worth pointing out that the labor force they're able to mobilize in ancient Egypt is not unlike the labor force they're able to mobilize in ancient Mesopotamia. So there are enslaved people building these structures using this advanced engineering skill. And it was seen as duty for the importance of the afterlife in Egypt. Um, you know, for Mesopotamia, it was for the um, ultimate ruler, which was a deity. And then that was a way to govern the um, new administrative body in government, you know, not necessarily called a government, but can be thought of in the same way. So general takeaways and concepts are how art and architecture are a reflection of the culture's central belief systems. And of course, also these social hierarchies that are in place that allow a pharaoh, for example, to be given such attention and protection in the afterlife. But this is really critical to what's at the core of Egyptian culture. So art and the afterlife are, they're on the same team here, they're working together. So another important but very different representation of the power of the pharaohs were not only the pharaohs themselves and the sculptures, but really the pyramids were a symbol of the pharaoh's accomplishments as well. The pharaoh would have been the one to initiate these monumental projects, um, and now they're the most famous visual image of Egypt. They, what, they were, at one point, the tallest structures in the world as well. So a recap, they were built for the dead. They were, Egyptians had this strong belief in the afterlife and believed that the pharaohs would become gods once they had died. The only way though, they're very particular and specific about these rituals because they didn't want to make a mistake. They didn't want this pharaoh to not have the chance to become gods, which comes from Actually, this, this Greek idea of apotheosis. So Hercules, for example, be, was believed, um, experienced and underwent this process of apotheosis. Once he dies, becomes a god or on the level of a deity like God. And the pyramids were, of course, meant as tombs. They had these tricky passageways that sometimes sorted off robbers and the tombs themselves, these pyramids, which can be thought of as monumental tombs, demonstrated the power of now these pharaohs that became gods, the power of these gods. And that continues for thousands of years in ancient Egypt. Again, that continuity, that consistency is what keeps what they believed maintained their power. And so in one of the photos that I have where you can actually see the three 
pyramids at Giza. The largest one in the photo, the one in the middle, was built by the pharaoh Khufu, and it took 20 years. And this is in second um, millennium BCE, before Common Era. He had thousands of skilled laborers. They lived in this special workers' village nearby, um, and they had to move more than 2.3 million stone blocks, weighing many tons, and that was all needed to construct this one pyramid. So the construction shows that, again, the sophistication of the Egyptians' engineering, the stones, they fit together, um, not always perfectly, and so therefore the laborers would need to design and cut them so that they would fit perfectly and hold the weight. And also this mobilization of the pharaoh creating this labor force of, of enslaved people. And going back again to the significant term ka, the idea of a spirit housed in a statue in the afterlife. So the spirit lives on. The pharaohs would hopefully become gods. They believed that they would come become gods in the afterlife if all of these careful rituals were done properly and the body was protected, the mummified body. And statues and objects, so whether it's the bust of Nefertiti, the pharaoh, the pharaoh and his queen, these are all representations of status, of power, to remind people that this is Egyptian culture, remember, um, and remember how they become, the pharaohs become more specific in their facial features, so that people know this is this particular pharaoh, this is this particular king. And this reminds the living of rulers, of the dead that are still among us in the afterlife as gods. And it had to be very careful, carefully and meticulously done in terms of how they would be protected, what kind of objects they would be buried with. Um, I gave the example of bread earlier so they can have bread in the afterlife. And it's interesting, I have been thinking about by going through this lecture, which I do every semester, well, I guess mostly every semester, thinking about our own funerary rituals in the contemporary world um, and how bodies now are embalmed with such care. Um, of course, this is a very expensive thing to do. So it kind of got me thinking, wow, well, only certain classes can really do this extravagant process of embalming a body. But it's very similar to the status of these pharaohs and queens of, you know, maybe expensive isn't the right word, but certainly it took a lot of skill, a lot of time to mummify the bodies, to have these rituals and to take care of them. Um, also, to even just put them in the tomb, which is the pyramid, which requires 
so much labor. I told you it took 20 years to build the largest pyramid at Giza. So, and these pyramids themselves, this is our final note. So that's one contemporary lens that maybe we can think about it in. And I'll include a few videos too that I watched that I thought were kind of interesting, but they're optional for you to watch about the mummification process and how much work went into that. Um, and the pyramids are part of a large funerary complex and the main tombs of those pharaohs are surrounded by smaller pyramids. And the smaller pyramids would have queens um, or other members of the royal court. But being buried near the godly pharaoh was thought to also give these noblemen and women a place in the afterlife as well, instead of going to a dark, lifeless space. And the complex contained everything that the pharaohs would need in the afterlife, right? Their court, their food, jewelry, uh, statues, and they were meant to show the power of the pharaohs to the living, so those that would come and visit it, to visit the pyramids, these sacred monumental structures, and also give these pharaohs and queens and, and noble men and women a new beginning in the afterlife. So the mummies and this mummification process is also an indication of preserving the body, preserving them on their journey to the afterlife so that it can extend for as long as possible and have this permanence. So when we tend to think of these sacred monumental structures of the pyramids, I think that even in my lecture here, it's kind of going under this assumption that they're these untouched artifacts, they're so protected. But in contemporary times, in 2020, modern Egypt is, is an entirely different culture, there's entirely different people, religion. It has a complicated heritage. And ancient Egypt is a huge tourist attraction, much like the ziggurats are a tourist attraction. So what does that mean that ancient and modern Egypt can always live easily side by side? And, and can they, rather, can they live side by side, ancient and modern Egypt? The needs of a developing country can sometimes clash with preserving ancient landmarks as we saw with ziggurats, that's a contentious point of discussion. And also looking at a photo that I've included of looking at the Giza, the pyramids at Giza from a different point of view with the modern Egypt landscape in the background there. We see their monumentality uh, when we're normally looking at them in this isolated way like this postcard image, it's interesting to see them from a totally different point of view. Maybe some of you have actually even visited these themselves or yourself. But looking at, look at the two photos of the different views of the pyramids and think about what this photo shows us about the tension between ancient 
thinking of, of Egypt and then in the context of this modern time, this modern Egypt. And how do you think we should be viewing art? Should we think of it in what we know as its original context or should we also consider its present state? And what does it mean in its present state? How does that change the meaning of the architectural object? <laughs> 